0: Hello friends, I'm your host Sujay and I welcome you to the 24th episode of the Meet Stargazers Podcast. Our guest today is a plasma physicist, speaker, and writer with a taste for adventure. She has a PhD in fusion energy from Imperial College London, is UK director of the Fusion Industry Association communications consultant for private fusion company Tokamak Energy and founder of Fusion Energy Insights. Her personal projects combine science with adventure. Her book Aurora in Search of the Northern Lights investigates the science of the Aurora against a backdrop of travel that also illuminates the places, the landscapes and the stories of the Northern Lights. In 2018, she climbed Mount Everest, filming and writing to tell the story of the science that gets us to the summit. She loves the mountains and believes science and exploration go hand in hand. Today, she is going to talk to us about Chasing the Aurora. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Melanie Windridge. Melanie. Thanks for taking the time to speak to us. And I'm excited to talk to you about chasing the aurora.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Melanie, what sparked your interest in the aurora and when did you get started?
1: Oh, I'd say I came to the aurora um, fairly late, you could say. I, mean, I wasn't a child. Um, what sparked my interest is that I did a PhD in plasma physics. Like for a completely different reason. Um, I was working on fusion energy, which is, it's that's what's happening in the stars, in the sun. And scientists are trying to harness that energy source to make a clean, uh, safe source of, of power for the future. And uh, so I got, in, I got into that after university, and I, would, I did my PhD on, on fusion. But uh, the, if you're a physicist, the, the, like the subset of physics that relates to fusion is plasma physics. And I don't know if If you know what a plasma is, most people uh, are familiar with plasmas because maybe they've heard of plasmas like a plasma TV or, or something like that. But often they don't know what it is. And a plasma is just an electrically charged gas or it's the fourth state of matter. So, you know about the states of matter, you know that we have solids, liquids, gases, and now we have plasma. And so And this is just about how much energy there is. So if you start with a block of ice, for example, and you heat it up, you give it a bit more energy, then it melts and you get a liquid, you get water. And if you give it a bit more energy, heat it up, then it will evaporate and you'll get a gas. And so the same thing happens. You give a gas a bit more energy. And uh, what happens is you're actually able to strip atoms apart. So you break them up into the electron, which goes around the outside of the atom, and the nucleus in the center, and which is sometimes called an ion, And, uh, and so then these two things, are, these two charges are moving around separately in your gas. And so this is an electrically charged gas, and this is what a plasma is. And, and plasmas are really interesting because they're very, well, they're, <laughs> they're kind of chaotic and dynamic because these charged particles add extra behavior. So a gas is a fluid. So it's already, you know, it's kind of hard to contain a gas. Well, it it just takes up whatever space container you have. But if you add in the charges, then now this plasma will respond to electric fields or magnetic fields. And if you start doing something like if you if you um, let's say you have a a neon light, you know, like a strip light and uh, you get a really strong magnet and you get close to it, you'll probably be able to see the light kind of move or shift, you know, you'll be able to affect those charged particles in the, in the tube. And if you have a neon tube with a different colour, you'll be able to see it even better. And so, and once you start affecting these charged particles, then they move and then they affect other charged particles and you get this big feedback loop. Anyway, so plasmas are kind of interesting um, and, but they're also very beautiful because these charged particles can also emit light. And so a lot of charge, a lot of plasmas, um, are colorful and dynamic and movement. And so this is where the aurora comes in. So, some examples of plasma are things like well, the sun is a plasma, um, flames are a plasma, uh, neon lights are a plasma. Uh, and so, there are various, oh, lightning is another one. So, there are various plasmas that you're probably quite familiar with. Anyway, so I was studying fusion energy. But the subset of physics is is plasma physics, because for fusion, if you're making something like the sun, then the uh, the gas is heated up to very high temperatures and it becomes a plasma. And so it was during this time that I became interested in plasmas in general and particularly the aurora, because I remember thinking, especially as, as I as I neared the end of my Ph.D., I was thinking, I'm a plasma physicist. Like I should see the most incredible, like natural plasma phenomenon, which is the aurora. So that's why I got interested in it from the plasma side, not necessarily because of the physics itself, but just because of the awareness that I had and and the fact that it's this beautiful, incredible thing. And so that's why that's why I wanted to to go and see it.
0: Thanks for sharing your journey with us. What does Aurora Borealis mean?
1: so aurora borealis actually means northern dawn so it was coined by galileo Galilei um in like the 1600s i think i'm really bad with dates don't tell anyone um and uh and so anyway he so you might be thinking hold on a second this is italy like how do they see the aurora down there but um well, firstly, there's very little light pollution like back in those days, and um, so if anything was happening, they would probably see it. Whereas nowadays, aurora does actually sometimes come further south, um, but you probably won't see it. And um, but there were some there were it was it was a more active period, and there definitely were a, a few by a few. Maybe he saw a, maybe he saw a few in his lifetime, should we say? So it's not like he was seeing these things every week, but he probably saw enough aurora displays to be thinking about it and wondering what it was and um anyway so he he coined this this term this northern dawn because it's seen in the north if, if you're if you're talking about the northern lights of course the southern lights is in the south but so you're looking towards the north pole and and it's yeah it was, just, it was light this light show and and if you get a big display it can be quite um it can be quite powerful you, you know so Quite colourful, um, quite intense. So, assuming he saw something like that, that's that, that's where the that's where the name came from.
0: What causes the aurora borealis?
1: Ooh, well, that's a big question there. What causes the aurora? Now, there, you're. I'm gonna. T- I'm gonna. T- it is a big question because there's a lot of misconception around this. But it's only kind of small, if you like. But for me, it's quite important. So, I would say, what causes the aurora is or the aurora is uh, like a light show that is caused by charged particles that are accelerated into the upper atmosphere. So that's what I would say it is. And this acceleration part is is really key. Now I'm going to unpack this a little bit because if you go if you go on any holidays, then the description you will probably hear from any aurora um, travel operators, they'll probably tell you that the aurora is caused by charged particles from the sun, which get caught up in the Earth's magnetic field, and they're funneled to Earth, and that causes the aurora. And like, okay, that's sort of broadly correct. Um, and actually, it's very close to the first, what I would call scientific description of the Northern Lights, which was offered by a Norwegian physicist called Christian Berkland about 100 years ago, in the early 1900s. And he was way ahead of his time. And everyone everyone thought everyone didn't believe him at the time you know they thought this is this is crazy and this can't be the reason for the aurora um but actually he was he was yeah it was was pretty close um but so this description and goes back about a hundred years or so and since then we've learned an awful lot more about the aurora and what actually happens. and so now we know that that there's more more to it than that more is involved so let me let me think about like why this can't be the whole story. It can't be the whole story that that charged particles are just like caught up in the Earth's magnetic field. Because, first of all, if you think about it, if the charged particles are kind of coming from the sun, they're going to get to the Earth on the sun side of the planet. And so, if they just get caught up in the magnetic field and come directly to Earth, they're going to come in on the day side of the planet. And that actually. To a certain extent, that does happen a little bit. But the aurora that results is very, very faint. And also, you can only see it when it's dark. So for the majority of people in daylight, you won't see any aurora on the day side of the planet. So we see aurora on the night side of the planet, which is the back side of the planet, away from the sun. So something else is happening here. Somehow, those particles that come from the sun are getting around to the back of the planet. So that's problem number 1. Problem number 2 is that the if they came in directly these charged particles they wouldn't have enough energy to cause the bright aurora displays that we see because the the light displays uh yeah the, the the what you see like the brightness of the light depends on like how fast the charged particles are coming into the atmosphere. And so if they were just sort of dripping in if you like from from the sun they they wouldn't make anything particularly bright. So the fact that we see bright, like moving aurora displays on the night side of the earth indicates that something else is happening here. So, so what is happening? What is happening is the, these particles do come from the sun. It's something that we call the solar wind and the sun is always spitting out charged particles just part of what it does it emits light but it also emits charged particles and uh and we yeah, we call it the solar wind sometimes you also get more particles coming off the sun because as well as just the ordinary like everyday solar wind sometimes you might see something on the sun which is called um an eruption which is where you might get a loop of plasma sticking out from the side of the sun and then it suddenly lets go of that loop and like throws some stuff out into space and sometimes you can get really big ones of this which is called a coronal mass ejection and this is when the sun just like spits out um huge amounts of matter so like billions of tons of matter traveling at millions of miles per hour and it's these coronal mass ejections that will give you the best aurora displays um but also they will disrupt things like aircraft and satellites and power grids, you know, so it's not always not, not necessarily a good thing, but you get nice aurora displays. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but so the sun's always spitting out particles and you will see aurora from just the everyday ordinary solar wind as well. And what happens is that these charged particles fly through space and some of them will hit the earth. And fortunately for the earth, we have protection because these charged particles would actually be dangerous to life and they would strip away our atmosphere and the planet would not be habitable anymore. So we're really lucky that the earth has a magnetic field and this magnetic field protects us from the solar wind. And uh, but, but the solar wind like interacts with our magnetic field. It's almost like it, it like transfers its energy to it. It's like it pumps it up or sets it ringing like a bell. And through this, stuff happens in the magnetic field where when where magnetic field lines break and then rejoin and you get what's and this is a process called magnetic reconnection and this happens behind the sun so the the solar wind kind of hits the earth like it's a like it's a rock in a stream or something and it it gets deflected around the outside of, of the earth and the magnetic field which is normally like a like a like, like, like you find on a bar magnet. So I don't know if you remember from school, if you did these iron filing drawings around a bar magnet, you'd see it has like butterfly wing patterns around it. So the Earth's magnetic field looks broadly like that. But imagine that suddenly there's a stream of particles hitting the side of this butterfly wing. And on the side of the sun, it kind of squashes it up a bit. And on the back of the sun, it stretches it out like a windsock. So you get this like long tail to the magnetic field. And it's in this long tail, if it gets squashed up enough at the back, then magnetic field lines actually get too close and then they snap and reconnect. And that's where the acceleration happens. So this might be sounding like very complicated. um, And it is actually pretty complicated what's happening out in space. Um, But the key thing to remember is that this acceleration process does happen. And so, I think a more accurate way of um, describing what causes the Northern Lights is to say that charged particles from the sun like interact with the Earth's magnetic field and this causes particles, it's electrons actually, to be accelerated down magnetic field lines and into the Earth's atmosphere. And when they get into the Earth's atmosphere, they they make it light up. They cause this incredible light show. So yeah, it is a complicated question and there's still so much... That scientists are learning about the aurora. Like it's not all solved. Yes, we can say what I just told you about what we understand about the aurora. And broadly speaking, we get it. But there's so much like intricacy of like the patterns and the shapes and and, and predicting. You know, we can't predict it very well. You know. So and I think that's fascinating personally because I don't think we should necessarily be on a quest to, um, you know finally understand everything if you know what i mean we can't we can't put it all in a box and go this is it it's like the journey never quite ends because the more you find out the more questions you get and that's that's a fascinating thing about science i think
0: can you see the northern lights with the naked eye
1: yes you can most definitely but not always because and this is one of the things about chasing the aurora it's uh, it's never a given and i always feel incredibly blessed to see the aurora because you just never know you you go away and you're hoping and sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't and a lot of the time though it's not just about what's happening with the aurora often it can it can be whether or not you see it can be due to light pollution weather you know there are all these different factors that come into play so when when you're choosing somewhere to go which we might talk about um you can't you, you have to think about all of these different factors so yes you can see the aurora with the naked eye if it's a if it's a if you're in a dark place and it's nighttime and uh you're in you're in an area that, that sees the aurora or if the if the activity is remarkably high and it's come down into your area you know if it's happening above you then uh, yes you can you can see the aurora and the 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 more energetic the display is you know so the more the more the more the magnetic field is being set ringing and the more electrons are being accelerated into the atmosphere then the brighter the display will be and the easier it will be to see sometimes it's very faint
0: what color are the northern lights
1: so the northern lights actually have a few different colors um and i think that if you get to if you get to see some of the rarer ones you know like the the reds and the pinks and like then you're really really lucky because the the easiest color to see or the you know the color that is most often seen is a green color it's a kind of bright green like almost almost a yellowish green sometimes but anyway it's green and it comes from oxygen and um and that is the most common colour of the aurora. But there are other colours as well. So oxygen also makes a red colour, but you often see the red colour like it's it's much harder to see. It's much higher up uh, in the aurora. So imagine if the aurora is like waving curtains, like hanging down, then the red colour will be like the uh, curtain rod at the top. Um, so it's much harder to see, though, because it's fainter and um, and it's darker. And then you also get sometimes you might get lucky and get like um, pinks from hydrogen or pinks and blues from nitrogen. And sometimes you see sort of brighter whites and yellows as well. I've seen that. At, and they're usually at the bottom of the of the aurora display. Again, if you're thinking about it like curtains hanging down, then you often get the brighter colors down at the bottom. Um, unless you get very lucky. And if it's a really wild, energetic display, then you you will start seeing other colors. Um, but the reason that you see all the, these different colors is because, well, it depends on what gases are in the atmosphere. And so so why why do these atoms, or why does the atmosphere em- emit light? You might be wondering. Well, this is because when electrons come in, when they're accelerated into the atmosphere, they hit against the molecules or the atoms that are in the atmosphere. So in Earth's case, this is most likely to be oxygen or nitrogen. And, and they, we call it exciting, they excite the atoms in the atmosphere. And what that means is, if you think about an atom, which has got a, a nucleus at, a, at the centre and electrons around the outside, what happens is that the incoming electron actually knocks an atom's electron out of position. And it doesn't necessarily knock it completely out of the atom, but it knocks it to what we call a higher energy level. So rather than orbiting the atom close to the nucleus, it sends it a bit further away from the nucleus. And the atom has various energy levels or different steps um, away from the nucleus. And then, so when when this electron is like higher up in a different energy level, when it drops back down to its original place, it releases all that extra energy. That it received and it releases that energy as light and so that's why you see the aurora it's from all these billions and billions of atoms in the atmosphere getting excited and then releasing that extra energy as light and the reason you get the different colors is because each atom has uh, these different energy levels like these different steps i like to think of it as different steps and so but they're, but they're fixed for a particular atom so oxygen will always have the same steps it always has a red step and a green step and that's it but you won't find it making you know blue light because it, it doesn't have that step and um and so so yeah the, the, so these colors come from the particular atom that's in the atmosphere so we we happen to see ox- see the green from oxygen most commonly just because there's there's more oxygen. The higher you go in the atmosphere, the gases get uh, like redistributed differently It's due to the density. And so you get more oxygen higher up. Uh, so you tend to see that color first. And the green color is is just an easier it's easier for the atom to release green than red, so you see it more commonly uh, than the red. and you you see the other colors like nitrogen, like the pinks and the blues. if there's if it's a very energetic, display if the magnetic field is being like pumped up a lot and the electrons are being accelerated deeper into the atmosphere then they will start hitting into nitrogen and you'll start getting those other like pinky bluey colors uh, which is nice so for me it's always really exciting to see some of those other colors um you know, besides green because usually you get a bit more movement as well and you get these other colors and, and that's amazing but it doesn't happen all the time at all so it's like a real treat to get the different colours.
0: What is the best time to see the aurora borealis?
1: What is the best time? Well, the best time is nighttime when it's dark <laughs> and also winter time when it's dark. So these are the two key things because actually a lot of people don't realise this, but the, the aurora actually does happen in the summer. It happens all the time. Um, we just can't see it in the summer. But if you look at... Uh, there are some satellites that that measure things like um they can look at like the ultraviolet uh, radiation for example rather than the visible radiation and so if you look at the aurora in ultraviolet then you'll see that actually it's happening it's happening all the time so you'll and you'll see it in the north and the south and so let's say when it's winter in the northern hemisphere and you'll see in the northern lights but it's summer in the in the south you'll still see that there's an auroral oval in the south you know there's still there's still aurora there It's just we can't see it. So the scientists can see it and they can study it in different wavelengths. But uh, if you want to actually see the aurora, then it has to be dark. And that means because at the poles you get 24-hour daylight in the summer, it means you cannot see the aurora in the summer. So there's a a real season for the aurora. It's usually sort of like August, September until about March, April um, in general. I mean, if it's a really bright display, then you do see some like autumn and spring aurora, where you where the where it's not so dark, you know it's kind of light sky, but you can still see the aurora. But um, yeah, if you're going if you if you if you're going on holiday to really try and see the aurora, then in general you want it to be nice and dark and um, and wintry. So those those are the those are the main times. But outside of that, like those are the main constraints. As long as it's dark, those are the main constraints. Because like you, you could even see if you go to Svalbard, um and it's dark 24 hours a day, you can sometimes see aurora during the day as well. So it's, it's always happening.
0: <laughs> How often do auroras appear? And do the northern lights happen every night?
1: That's a really good question. And I would say that the aurora, there's always going to be some kind of low-level aurora because there's always a solar wind. As I said, the sun is always giving out these charged particles however I'm going to caveat that because it does there's a lot of things that come into play and so you you can't see aurora like absolutely all the time because it depends on (laughs) because of this because a lot of it's to do with the magnetic fields and how the fields are breaking and reconnecting um a lot of it depends on the directions of the magnetic fields, like in the solar wind, because all plasmas have an, a magnetic field. So the, the solar wind itself has an embedded magnetic field, and this can change because it depends on how it's released from the sun. So as the sun moves, the way we the way we sometimes think about it is that like the sun has a magnetic field, and imagine imagine that the sun has a sort of bar magnet shaped magnetic field as well initially it doesn't stay like that because the sun's rotating um but it has what's called differential rotation so the center of the sun rotates at a different speed to the outer layers of the sun and that means that the magnetic field gets all twisted up um, and actually the magnetic field of the sun um changes polarity every 11 years as a cycle that the sun goes through and um so the, so the magnetic field of the sun is all pretty twisted um but they, they sometimes talk about it having a, like a ballerina skirt. So the way, so like a tutu, you know, sticking out. And it's almost like on one side of the tutu, like on the upper part, the magnetic field is in one direction and on the lower part, it's, it's a different direction, but this sort of tutu moves. It's like the sun's swaying and the skirt is sometimes up and the skirt is sometimes down. And so the magnetic field that the solar wind is throwing out can actually change. It varies and it's difficult to predict. It's just sort of changes and flaps up and down. And it might stay up for like a whole day or several hours and then it might tilt and go down again. And anyway, different magnetic fields. And the way, and the magnetic field that's in the solar wind interacts differently with the magnetic field of the earth because the direction of the magnetic field of the earth is the same all the time. And so sometimes, sometimes when the magnetic field is in pointing in the north direction. it's actually much easier for the solar wind to just flow over the earth, you know like a rock in a stream, and and not really transfer its energy properly into the magnetic field of the earth. Whereas if the magnetic field of the solar wind is pointing south, then a different process happens and it interacts much more strongly with the Earth's magnetic field, and therefore it transfers a lot of energy. To the Earth's magnetic field, and that's what sets up the acceleration, and uh, and sets up a, a better Northern Lights display. So, yeah, sorry, this is like complicated um, explanation, but that's why you can't, you don't see Aurora like all the time. Even if it's a perfect, perfectly clear night, and it's dark, and you're in the right place, you might not be seeing Aurora because the magnetic fields just might not be interacting in the right kind of way. But if the magnetic fields are interacting in the right kind of way, then even a low level aurora with just the everyday solar wind will probably, or sorry, not an, an everyday solar wind will probably give you a, a low level aurora. And by a low level aurora, I mean, you'll probably see green, the oxygen green, and you might get what they call a band or an arc stretched across the sky, like a green stripe across the sky. You might see some movement. So it might twist a little bit, or you might get a bend in that arc and it might move, but the movement will probably be very slow. A bit like if you're watching clouds on in the day, you know they move, but you don't really notice it when you look up at the sky. It's only if you watch it for a long time that you see it's changed. So that's what I would call a low level aurora. And you'll probably see that um, anytime you go to the Arctic and it's dark and the magnetic field is in the right direction. <laughs> And so it's a treat if you get you know, the, the more active displays and, and more happening.
0: How long do the northern lights last?
1: Hmm. Well, that depends on how long the magnetic fields are interacting with to get, you know, together. How long the solar wind magnetic field is interacting with the Earth's magnetic field, and but it also goes in cycles. So if the let's assume for now that the magnetic field is south the solar wind and so it's interacting strongly with the earth's magnetic field and we're seeing aurora then you'll find that there's actually like a pattern to the aurora although it looks like it's kind of haphazard and, and crazy in the sky if you if you see enough of these things um you'll see that there is some kind of a pattern there and what broadly happens is that it starts as a uh, like uh, just a band across the sky, like in the north. And then gradually this band like moves further south. Uh, and this is as magnetic fields are changing in, in the Earth's uh, atmosphere. And so this band gradually moves further south and then you get to a point where it starts to break up. So rather than looking like a nice even band or arch across the sky, it starts to twist. And uh, and yeah, war like you know, like if like if you've got an elastic band or something, and you're twisting, 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 and it suddenly starts kinking, and it'll start doing that kind of thing. And this is called the breakup. And that's where you'll get more movement and more activity. And uh, and then gradually this will die down, and it will, you know, the, the the band, if you like, will sort of move back to the north again, and it will quieten down. And then the whole thing can start again, and that process, that whole process, can last about half an hour, and then it can repeat. So you could, you can get it again, um, and this is what's called a, a substorm. This this little half an hour loop, um, but yeah, it can, if it's good, you can watch the aurora all night. But it sort of ebbs and flows, so it might not be like incredible. All night, you get this like quiet bit, and then you get the breakup, and then it dies, and so it, yeah, it's it's a cycle. It's actually in the in the earth. It's it is a cycle. It's this thing that's happening and then repeating, and then happening and repeating. um But if there's a big coronal mass ejection that causes a big uh, solar storm, they call it, or a geomagnetic storm when it gets to Earth. If a geomagnetic is going on, then it's. It's, it's harder to see that pattern because it's like, it's just so big and there's so much going on that, you know, you don't really see the subtleties of that pattern anymore. It's like overwhelms it. Um, but yeah, so in in general, it's little sub-storms sub of about half an hour, but it could go on all night if the, um, if, if the magnetic field's in the right direction and it's interacting strongly with the aurora, uh, sorry, interacting strongly with the Earth's magnetic field. Oh, and there's one more thing. It's also... Um, Over uh, across the night what you see will change slightly so this is when it gets a little bit mind-bending well for me at least because you've got to remember that like from where you are on the earth time you know the night is progressing and it will get to morning for you but for the earth the earth could still be like the aurora could still be the same for the earth (laughs) um but but, but now the Earth where you are standing is in a different orientation to the sun. So what you will see is different to what, let's say, somebody else will see who was standing where you are standing relative to the sun three hours ago. Let's see. Let's say. So it is kind of crazy. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so if you're thinking about it from your observer point of view, as the night passes, you will see the aurora slightly differently as well. And that's because the the best aurora is going to be at the back of of the Earth, so away from the sun, and so that's like well, it's it's broadly speaking midnight. It's not exactly midnight because people have different, you know, we have time zones, <laughs> and so we might be shifted a little bit from, you know, what the uh, astronomical midnight is or whatever you call it. But um let's say it's midnight. So if you think about it, the aurora activity—if you imagine it as a—you can see globs on the globe like if you imagine a, a globe the world and then you've got this like ring of aurora around like a ring of light let's say around the globe you'll see that it's fattest behind away from the sun at the midnight point and then it will kind of taper off to like thin ends in the daytime point so not much is happening there and um so broadly speaking let's say you can see reasonable aurora from about 6 p.m at night to about let's say 6 a.m in the morning so that that period of, of night time, uh, particularly on the, the, the build up to midnight and around midnight, that's when you're gonna see the like the substorms that I've just been talking about and like that kind of um build up and break up and that sort of thing. But then when you get nearer to the morning, like maybe around I don't know, three or four a.m. I've never actually seen this, I never stay up that late. But um when you get to the morning time, you it the aurora actually changes. It becomes more what we call something um called patchy pulsating aurora. So rather than like a wide band, you get more like patches of color and light. And as it sounds like pulsating, you can get like flashes um, in these patches as well. And actually scientists believe that th- these are caused by completely different mechanisms. So something else is happening um, to cause the patchy pulsating aurora than what's happening to cause the um let's say the ordinary arc. Or banned Aurora, which is fascinating, I think. I mean, there's just so much going on that, as I said, scientists are still still figuring out and, and trying to understand. But yeah, so if you stay up all night, you will actually see the Aurora change.
0: Can Aurora be predicted? And if yes, how far in advance can Northern Lights be predicted?
1: I'm sorry to say that it's really difficult to predict the Aurora. It's a shame because it means that nobody can book holidays and you know and be sure, I'm guaranteed to see the Aurora. But as I said earlier, I think in some ways it makes it so special because, because you're not guaranteed. And it's not like you can just say, okay, I'm going to go and do this thing. I'm going to go and see the Aurora. There we go, done. It's like, well, for me at least, maybe I'm... Maybe, I don't maybe think I'm the only one. But anyway, for me at least... I find myself always wanting to go back because I go and I'm not sure if I'm going to see it. And I don't always see it. I actually wrote my entire book about the Aurora. I think I went to see the Aurora about five times when I was writing that book in various different locations around the world. And I did see the Aurora. I did. I was like very lucky. Even the first time I, I went, I saw the Aurora. But I mostly saw what I would call quiet displays. I only saw real color and movement after I'd finished like publishing that book. I mean it was probably trip 7 or something. You know, so it's not a quick fix. It's as I said I did see it. I did see the aurora on the first time I went. I haven't seen it every time I went. Um but I always I mean I always want more because you kind of see, even if you, if you only see the this, the quiet aurora, I call it, then. Then you kind of want to go back because you're like, well, yeah, I saw that and it was great. And I felt so grateful to see that. But I really want to see color. And then when you see the color, you go, oh, my God, I just saw the color. That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen ever. I have to go back. Like, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Because it doesn't last. Like, you see this amazing blast of color and things. And then I don't know how long it is. Maybe 10 minutes later, it's all gone. And you're just like, do it again. Come on, do it again. So for me, it just it's it's never it's never quite enough um so anyway yeah you can't predict it and maybe that adds to some of the specialness of it what you can do is um you can get a little bit of of warning so when I say a little bit maybe three or four days let's say so what can you predict generally Generally, there are times when the the strength might be a bit better. So they say that around the equinoxes, you can get better aurora. And that is simply because of what we were talking about earlier and the magnetic field directions. It just so happens that because of the way that the Earth is oriented, it makes it slightly more probable that you'll get a good interaction with the solar wind in around the equinoxes. So kind of March and September. So it, those are a good time, or can be a good time to go. But as far as actual predictions go, if you see a coronal mass ejection happening on the sun, which indicates you'll get a good, probably get a good auroral display if, if it hits us. You don't always know if the coronal mass ejection is going to come to, towards Earth and hit us. If it hits, you'll get a good display. You maybe have got two to three days warning. So if you if you can get on a flight, and, you know, fly out to Iceland or Norway or Canada or wherever with two or three days notice, then you could you could catch the coronal mass ejection. But pretty much that's all the notice you get. Like we can't predict it any further. So it's all just about probabilities, really. What will give you the best chance of being in the right place at the right time? And then you just hope.
0: <laughs> what is KP index for Aurora forecast?
1: Uh-huh. so the KP index. Yeah, this is something that if you look at any aurora forecasts, you'll probably see mentioned, and nobody really knows what it means. <laughs> so it's—I mean, if you're just a tourist, so it can be a little bit confusing. All it is is it's that the P stands for planetary. It's the planetary K index, and the K stands for something awkward. I think it's in German and it means digit or something. So German speakers might know what it stands for, and omega or something. Anyway, what it is, is it's a measurement of how disturbed the Earth's magnetic field is. So when the solar wind hits the Earth's magnetic field, as I said, it interacts with it, it changes. It changes what it looks like. It rips fields apart and drags them over the top of the earth and puts them back on the other side and you know really changes things around and so the there are there are various observatories in various places around the world um that have that have apparatus that measures the earth's magnetic field and they can see how how disturbed it is how changed it is and so each of these different observatories gets a particular index for the disruption of the magnetic field. And then the planetary K index, the KP, is like an average of about, I think it's about 13 or so observatories around the world. So you get an average distribution because the magnetic field is very localized. You can have, it could be a particular value in one part of the planet and a different value somewhere else. Um, And so this, this planetary index just sort of gives a broad overview of how disturbed the earth's magnetic field is and so in general terms it tells you what size of geomagnetic storm or maybe not even a storm it might be lower level but what size of disruption you're going to get and therefore what size of aurora display you're going to get so if the kp index is down at like one two or three then that's a very quiet ordinary display so you might see something but it will probably just be as i said before like a, a band of green and very slow movement not much else once it starts getting above three to like four you're starting to see a bit more activity you might get a bit more movement a bit, bit brighter maybe if it gets into five that's when they start they being like the forecasters or like nasa or Noah Noah's as the um uh, National oceanographic and yeah. atmospheric administration, or something. Anyway, so they do the global world stuff, and they've got a they've got a a place that I visited, a prediction center, which is called the Space Weather Prediction Center in Boulder, in Colorado, which gets nicknamed SWPC because it's the SWPC, <laughs> so they call it SWPC, which I think is quite funny. Um, anyway, th- there are others around the world. Like the UK has a it now has a Met Office Space Weather Operations Center, and like various other countries will have their own space weather but um but it's all done by satellites so it's all global you know they share they share the information but anyway so where was i so they they um swipsey or whoever the prediction people will categorize it as a geomagnetic storm when it gets to 5 so that means okay this is like low level geomagnetic storm now we're seeing bigger effects and the reason it matters for them is because as i said before unfortunately it's not all about the uh, aurora Watchers. although we love big displays there's a lot of people who don't love big displays because it really disrupts things like um satellites it disrupts aviation it disrupts power grids so people who operate those kind of things need to know about these geomagnetic storms because they need to take evasive action to protect their assets so that's a whole other conversation um but it's very interesting actually But uh, yeah, we we Aurora watchers love big storms. So anything that happens above five, you're thinking, woohoo, Aurora, ahoy, like, let's get on that flight and try and catch it. Or if you live in the areas, get your cameras out. Um, And then if it gets to if it gets higher, then you start seeing more like I think the KP index has to be around eight or nine for you to be able to see Aurora around London. Obviously, you won't see it in London because of the light pollution. But I mean, to get down to that kind of level, I think if, if it's around five or so, four or five, you start being able to see it in Scotland. Um, actually, you get it more like overhead like around your level in Scotland. They, they can see it at lower level in the distance on the horizon, but you'll see a better display, like quite a good display in Scotland if it's like four or five, I think. So anyway, so this KP index gives you an idea of... Of how strong the magnetic disturbance is and therefore where you could expect as in what latitude you could expect to see the aurora because mostly on just like you know ordinary everyday kp123 you see the aurora in what we call the aurora zone which is about it's like an area of latitude between give or take like 60 and 70 degrees latitude so that means that's places like Northern Scandinavia, Iceland, Greenland, Canada, um, Alaska. Those are the kind of places where you ordinarily would see the aurora. If you get a higher KP index, then this oval sort of widens and you can see the aurora further south. So that's what the KP index does. It gives you this indication of where, where you might see the aurora and how strong it might be. What it doesn't do is it doesn't tell you you're going to see the aurora. You could have a KP index of five. And if the magnetic field is in the wrong orientation, you might not see anything, which is really annoying. But so, yeah, so that, so it doesn't guarantee anything, but it just tells you how, yeah, how, how geo effective it could be.
0: Where is the best place to see the northern lights?
1: Ooh, well, that's a difficult one because I think that, again, I can only really give like generalities on this kind of thing because because there's no specific place that is necessarily the best. Like it's a global, the aurora is a global phenomenon, which is, which is lovely. Like it just, it it will happen. It's happening all around the world. And as I I said earlier, when I'm thinking about the times, um, if you're seeing the aurora, you know, in Scandinavia, then they're also seeing the aurora in Canada, or at least they will do when it's, when it's light and the planet turns a little bit because it's, it really does just like stretch out um, around the world. So any of those places that I mentioned, like northern Scandinavia, Iceland, Greenland, Canada, Alaska, Siberia, these are all places where one could see the northern lights. Where's the best place? That often comes down to other factors. So what's going to stop you seeing the northern lights? One big thing that's going to stop you seeing the northern lights is clouds weather so the aurora actually happens really high up in the atmosphere so like hundreds of kilometers up so the the greeny color that you get generally comes from around 100 kilometers up maybe a little bit less but generally broadly around 100 kilometers up and it stretches hundreds of kilometers more the red color that you see at the top that's usually about 500 kilometers up um, and even the lower levels if you see those those nitrogen like brighter colors that's more like let's say probably 80 kilometers up or thereabouts maybe a bit less um so anyway it's high most of the clouds that you see are below about 10 kilometers so the clouds are a lot closer to the planet to the earth than, than the aurora are and that means that if the clouds are in the way they just block the view entirely. You won't see anything at all. And so the biggest problem when it comes to hunting the aurora is actually the weather, I'd say. So when it comes to the best places to see the aurora, it's often the places which have the best weather. If you're looking for somewhere, if you're, if you're looking to do a trip and give yourself the best chance of seeing the aurora, then yeah, you could go any place that I just mentioned in the auroral oval, but you want to look for the places that have the best weather. Now, often the inland areas have like more clear days um and so that can be a better bet uh, so there are places like well like i've been to inland canada so around Yellowknife, there's a really cute lodge called blatchford lake lodge which is like you take a little seaplane or snow plane um like out to this lodge away from Yellowknife. because this is the, the problem is you don't want to in the cities you've got light pollution so you need to get out of the cities and go somewhere go somewhere that's dark um but people also go to Whitehorse in Canada I've never been there personally but there are loads of places I haven't been so I can't really uh, can't really say specific places but um, but generally inland places are better. having said that there are lots of beautiful places on the fjords in Norway um, and you know, they will they will see the Aurora but probability of clouds is greater on the coast. So you've got to factor that in generally if you go for a decent number of days like if you go for four or five days, then you will probably see something. But some people don't want to spend that much time. You know, they want to do lots of other things. And But if you really are dedicated and you want to see the Aurora, I would recommend going to one of these Aurora lodges so that's out of the way, somewhere dark, and go for like at least four nights and you should see something. No guarantee, but you should. But you've just got to give yourself, it's an investment, you've got to give yourself the time to uh, to be there for the conditions to be right, because there's so much that, that's variable.
0: What is the southernmost place to see the northern lights?
1: Southernmost place? So there's no there's no answer to that, because it depends on the activity of of the sun. Well, there are two questions there. What is the most southerly place that you could see the aurora? And that's that's where there's not really any answer. I mean, there, I think there have been big solar storms, ones that would be quite disruptive to us now, because we have a lot more technology than we used to have and solar storms can like really disrupt technology. So that's not so good, but there was a big solar storm in um, 1859, which is called the Carrington event. And uh, it's famous because it's famous because, well, this, this guy called Carrington saw uh, this solar flare happening on the sun. And it was, it's a time when they first began to actually put to get put two and two together that it might be something happening on the sun that was, causing the Aurora. Before then, it had just been like completely random. Um, But also the telegraph had just been invented. And so there were disruptions to the telegraph and there were like electrocutions and, well, maybe not that many, but I think there were some. Anyway, so there was disruption. And so it was the first inkling that something like electric or electromagnetic was was going on. Um, But anyway, I think there were, were reports around that time when they had this huge event of seeing the Aurora, like around like Cuba or, um, you know, people saw it really far South and like South in the United States and like in Europe. And so for big events, there's kind of no limit, really. You can, you can see them really far South, but that's really, really unusual. So how far South would you see them ordinarily? If I were booking a flight uh, or booking a holiday to go and see the aurora, then I'd probably want to be within the 60 to 70 degrees latitude. So even the south of Scandinavia, like even places like Oslo and Stockholm are like too far south, really. You want to go to the north of Scandinavia. You want to go higher up. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of two questions there.
0: <laughs> Where can our listeners find you online?
1: Where can you find me online? Well, I've got a website, which is melaniewindridge.co.uk, and I have things there. Uh, that are about fusion of course because like that's what I do but also about the aurora and and some mountain stuff as well if you like that kind of thing. Um, I'm also on social media so I'm on Twitter and Instagram as M underscore Windridge and uh, I'm I've got a YouTube channel although I don't I'm not a YouTuber I don't regularly post but I have various playlists on my YouTube channel, because i've I've contributed to a lot of videos and things in the past, and I've made some of my own as well. So they're organized into playlists by like Fusion and Everest and the Aurora. So you can find things over there. Um, and i'm I'm planning to start a new thing, but I haven't done it yet. Um, but you should look out for I'm thinking about starting an Aurora stories um, membership for people who, who who love the aurora and want to get a like weekly dose of inspiration into their inbox because uh, this like I've been looking at at different people's stories of the aurora for years now and and I love the way that it's so multidisciplinary you know I love people's personal stories about like their their experiences of the aurora because it's always such a a meaningful thing people to see so i love those stories but then there's also the aurora stretches into things like art and music and and travel and and nature and, and, and science of course so there's like all these different elements and and i like to explore all these different things and so for the kind of people who who enjoy that too and like the sort of mind expanding um things around like aurora and and all these different these different facets like nature and travel and science. and for people who like that, I'm gonna set up this this kind of community where we can we can just like geek out over nice Aurora things and uh, and connect. so but I haven't done that yet but I'm that's something that I'm planning so uh, yeah, to have a look have a look. you'll probably find details of that on my website hopefully soon.
0: Melanie, could you talk to us about your book? on Chasing the Aurora?
1: Yeah, so I wrote a book (laughs) and it was kind of accidental in a way in that, I mean, obviously it wasn't accidental. I knew what I was doing, but the way it started, I never went out thinking I'm going to write this book, like many things. I just, um, I went to see the Aurora that first time, I think because I mentioned I'd done a PhD and, and I wanted to see the Aurora. And so and so I, I did. And the way I saw it the first time was I went on a course because I was still I was just finishing my PhD and the Aurora is quite expensive. Actually, or, or going to Scandinavia can be quite expensive. And, and also, I'm just interested in, in learning more about these things. And as I said, I was interested in the physics. And so what, what happened is that I, I saw something advertised through the university that there was this auroral science course or well, I know arctic science course i think it was called and uh, and it looked really fun it was like a, it was it was a little bit of distance learning because it was open to students all across uh, europe so there's a bit of distance learning but with a week long or six day field trip in Karuna in sweden and uh, and it wasn't just about aurora this course it was actually cool it was interesting we did like various different arctic things like we learned about snowflakes which are beautiful. And um, and we learned about avalanches and Arctic ecology and loads of different things. Anyway, another part of it was the aurora. We learned about the aurora and we were encouraged to go out at night to observe the aurora. And, um, you know, we had various like project work things that we had to do. And so that was my first experience of seeing the aurora. And as I said, I, having seen that, I, I wanted to go back. But it also made me interested in how others would have seen the aurora in the past. Like, you know, could you imagine, I thought about like the the polar explorers, because I'm interested in skiing and uh, adventure and that kind of thing. And I thought about what it must have been like for polar explorers, just like standing there and experiencing this thing, like looking up at this changing sky. And back then they had no idea, like the early 1900s, they had no idea um, what was causing the aurora. And then I thought about the the local people, the indigenous people, and what they must have thought about about the aurora. And so, if you start digging into these things, you you find out about like the um, the the mythology from all the, the the local indigenous people and what they think the, the the aurora is, and all the stories. And 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 you actually find that when it comes to the science, a lot of the science in the very early days was sort of kind of driven by the same things like they had no idea what it was so the science is very much like like the stories like the mythology you know they some of the early scientific explanations are things like oh it's well it's fire it's fire in the sky because some if you especially if you see it lower down like in europe it's often in a red color because that's a, a big aurora display so then it would look much more like fire and it was a bad omen and things whereas it wasn't when it was green up in the in the scandinavian countries um and then they and also people thought it was maybe it was volcanoes or maybe it was vapors you know so a lot of the early scientific descriptions were very much like the stories and anyway so i started looking into these kind of things and and i thought i felt that that side of of the aurora was kind of as interesting as the scientific side as well but with a small caveat that i didn't like the way that often the scientific descriptions were dismissed uh, as being like really mundane and boring like i remember reading something once and there's there's a Finnish like description of the aurora or the mythology around the uh, the aurora is that the the aurora is caused by an Arctic fire and he's like scampering across uh, the snow and his tail uh, like uh, swooshes up um, ice crystals and they go up into the sky and they they cause the aurora and so actually the um the Finnish word for aurora is revontulet, I think, which which means foxfire. It's a really beautiful story, um, but I remember reading this in the in a magazine somewhere, and then it said, you know, the more prosaic description of you know, what really happens in the aurora is that charged particles like come from space, and I was like, prosaic. I mean, <laughs> it's actually incredible if you think <laughs> about it. Like the idea that charged particles travel for like, you know, across the void of space, and they interact with the Earth's magnetic field, and and in fact. The Earth, like the the Aurora, what I think is really beautiful, is that the Aurora is actually like the Earth's protection. It's its protective mechanism. Like it absorbs all the energy of this battering solar wind, and it dissipates it in this incredibly beautiful light show. And I think that. I think that that's wonderful and beautiful. And I think that the like the presence of mind of someone like Christian Birkeland to come up with that first idea that charged particles were traveling across space and getting caught up in magnetic field lines. I don't think it's prosaic at all. I think it's incredible. And so anyway, I, by these kind of things, like, it inspired me to, to learn more and, and to write my own kind of story. And so I got this idea that, and also I, I like combining science with, with adventure. And so I was really attracted to the Arctic. I wanted to go back and I kind of, but I want I almost wanted a reason to do it. I don't know why. I d- I just maybe I like having some kind of purpose, but I just thought I want to travel more around the Arctic. I want to learn more about this stuff. And wouldn't it make the most wonderful um story like to tell people the science of the Aurora, but also the other sides of the Aurora? And and so that was what was really lovely. I, I travelled around the Arctic. I went to various different Arctic locations, and I spoke to lots of different people who are in the book. It's like their story more than my story, or I just tie it all together. But I spoke to people ranging from physicists, of course, because I, I did want to get. I'm a plasma physicist. I wanted to, like, get the real story of the aurora. But I also spoke to. I spoke to a reindeer herder and like got his perspective. I spoke to photographers. I spoke to artists. Um i spoke to people about space weather and yeah the the disruptive effects and you know so i really i really tried to pull together all these these different stories and for me personally i think it's like the best thing i ever did it's just it was so enriching for me and i met so many incredible people who i have such a debt of gratitude to because they not only enriched my life but they enabled me to to make this thing that can enrich other people's lives and and give people an insight into plasma physics, even if they have no idea about it. And they don't even care about it, really. They just care about the aurora. Um, But it gives them an insight into this completely different world. And I just, yeah, I just, it was just a really, really wonderful thing to do. I did it over a number of years. And it was just an absolute privilege to be able to to visit all those places and speak with all those people and yeah and that 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 became my book aurora in search of the northern lights it's this little story of my of my i call it my most beautiful adventure <laughs> my journey in, into the aurora
0: melanie thank you so much for this insightful conversation friends i hope this discussion has given you the motivation to chase the aurora you will find useful links and resources, including Melanie's books, in the show notes. If you liked this episode, please consider buying me a coffee. You can find a link to my buy me a coffee page at the bottom of the show notes.